you know, I sort of think of machine learning and deep learning as um, kitchen sink analysis, right? You throw in the kitchen sink, uh, all of the data factors that you have, and you learn something new. And so there's huge potential to do that once we get some of those data needs under control. Welcome to the Esri in the Science of Wear podcast. This bi-weekly program features insights on location intelligence and data science for transforming business and government. You just heard Esty Garrity, Chief Medical Officer and Health Solutions Director at Esri, talk about how advanced analytics and location intelligence will accelerate our understanding of pandemics like COVID-19. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate emerging practices and policies that are equipping the world to intelligently respond to pandemic threats. Esty, hi, and thanks so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mariana. Given that you are a medical doctor and a deputy director with the California Department of Public Health, I'm really fortunate to be having this conversation as the global pandemic around COVID-19 is surging, where we have an opportunity to learn from somebody who's experienced with disease outbreaks and epidemics and understands what it means for society, governments, business communities, and so on. So to start with, what I wanted to do is to ask you, ST, to take a look at the now almost infamous dashboard that's been in the media that was developed largely by John Hopkins that has become a dashboard of choice to track and understand the impact of this disease. So would you walk us through that dashboard as of March 24th, 2020 and what you're seeing both concerning and good news? Sure. The first thing I always tend to look at is the total number of confirmed cases. At this moment, we have 415,876 confirmed cases. The next thing is a little bit more on the depressing side. I, I always want to keep tabs on the death rate. And uh, today I'm seeing that this pandemic has uh, consumed the lives of 18,574 individuals. And as I go through, I think I do what a lot of people do, which is find out what's happening where I am. I'm in the United States. There are over 52,000 cases today in the U.S. And I also live in the state of California. And uh, we currently have 2,324 confirmed cases in California. And then what I've started to do is look at the, um, the epi curve to see how the cases per day are stacking up. And Johns Hopkins does provide an epi curve with daily increases. So I first look at China because I want to see where this started and what's going on. And that curve is significantly flattened. I think we've all heard the news that the cases are decreasing. In fact, they had a day of celebration where they had no new cases on a day recently. And so it gives everybody hope that there is an end in sight. And then I always want to look at what's going on in the U.S. Our curve is still steep. And so we can expect that we haven't hit a peak yet. And uh, so I continue to take all of the recommendations about uh, shelter in place quite seriously. So that's, that's how I approach the dashboard every time I look at it. What kind of data goes into this dashboard or dashboards like it, and how often is it updated? 
So the data that goes into the dashboard is different for some of the major dashboards that we're seeing. And in some ways, it's similar. So the Johns Hopkins dashboard is using data from a number of different sources. One major source is called dxy.cn. It is a database that comes from China, and uh, they use that as well as some social media information, crowdsourced information, all sorts of different data resources to figure out not only the confirmed cases, but they add in the presumptive cases. Now, the World Health Organization does it a little bit differently, and so people sometimes are confused when they look at the two dashboards. WHO is reporting confirmed cases only, uh, so they don't have that uh, presumptive level in there, and that's why their dashboard always looks like it's got fewer cases reported. And both organizations are updating their dashboards on a regular basis, multiple times per day. Um, but that also can cause some differences because they're not updating at the exact same time per day. So I think it's important to read the metadata, understand what you're looking at, especially if you're making important decisions based on this. Right. And within uh, one of these dashboards, do we feel confident that the data is consistent, authoritative, reliable? Uh, how would you answer that? I actually consider both to be authoritative, working off of sound methodologies, and they both report on their methodologies. So uh, I feel a sense of comfort knowing what their approaches are. But in the big picture, I think we have to say that the World Health Organization is our authoritative resource. However, I understand why people have really gravitated toward the dashboard because it does provide data at uh, smaller geographies than the country level, particularly in China and in the United States. And people want that more granular data. So this pandemic is different from pandemics of the past, and there were many in our history. And in your writings and conversations, you refer to this one as a highly mobile pandemic, and we are a highly mobile and pandemically prone society. So could you expand on that and how mobility has contributed to this outbreak? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question in my mind that our mobile society has made it much more difficult to deal with infectious diseases, particularly ones that can go to a pandemic scale. We are absolutely a global society. People are on the move all the time, whether that's in their local communities or traveling across the planet. The concern when it comes to disease spread is that someone can be infected and they can pass that infection on to others before they even know that they're ill. It happens innocently enough, but it can lead to widespread epidemics and pandemics that become difficult to control. What would you say were the lessons learned in, in this pandemic uh, so far, whether it's in China or elsewhere, uh, given the mobility of, of our behavior? Well, I think one of the major lessons that we've learned is that you have to act fast. Speed is definitely uh, important because those big decisions like cutting off different kinds of transportation to stop the spread of disease are not easy to make. They impact a lot of people, cause uh, inconvenience and other kinds of hardships. 
And nobody seems to want to make those decisions, although I've been actually quite gratified to see that people are stepping up and making the difficult decisions as a way to protect the population health. But that is a lesson learned. We, we have to act fast. Thinking ahead, uh, how as a global community can we be better prepared if and when this happens again or something similar happens again? Well, I think we have learned a lot about what works and where we have shortfalls. From what I'm seeing, I think one of the key areas where we can improve our preparedness for this kind of thing is in the collection of foundational data. Governments at all levels are trying to find reliable data resources for COVID-19 cases, for healthcare facility and bed information, for the testing centers and more. So to be prepared, I think we need to modernize the systems that we already have that are meant to collect these data resources and ensure that they're kept current. If there are important data resources that are not already being captured in a real-time system, and there certainly are, then maybe we need to create them. And I think the next step is going to be to consider how and when to share those data resources with the people who need them to make decisions and carry on their business. And that part involves governance policies and data use agreements. And I think all of those things could be done in advance of the next pandemic. This is no time to be scrambling for the data. I think we need to be spending all of our time and energy responding to needs. Well said. How would you say location is relevant to this foundational data that needs to be gathered and understood? Gosh, location is relevant to everything. I know I'm biased in that perspective, but uh, I did choose to, to come to Esri because of that very reason. So location is relevant to understanding the current lay of the land, to figuring out where are the places where you should spend your most time and effort understanding vulnerable populations and places to figure out your capacity uh, for surge and how you are going to respond and where you have those shortages and gaps and how you're going to mitigate them in the short term and the long term. All of those are questions of where. The roots of this geographic information systems or GIS, the way it's referred to in the industry, can be certainly traced back to the spread of many pandemics and one famous one of the cholera in England back in 1854. So maps then also help experts understand these diseases and epidemics. And another example would be the influenza pandemic of 1918. So for our listeners who aren't very familiar with location intelligence and the power of mapping, could you summarize what happened then and how it relates to understanding and controlling outbreaks now? Well, let me go back just a little bit further than 1854's cholera outbreak. I like to start around 400 BC because that's when Hippocrates, the father of medicine, wrote a book, basically, that's called a treatise, and it was on airs, waters, and places. And it was there that he actually described and outlined all of the ways that location impacted health outcomes. Now, then we think about mapping and health, and we can go to the first health map that was ever created, which I happen to recall was in 1694. Um, and it was on, in a way, a similar topic. It 
looked at containment and quarantine zones for the bubonic plague. Now, the story that you got to, the one with Dr. John Snow, uh, was definitely the most famous. That was 1854 London, as you mentioned, and they had a major cholera outbreak in the city. Now, when that was happening, no one really knew what was causing cholera. So it became difficult, if not impossible, to track its origins and spread. And so mapping, it turns out, came in pretty handy. So what Dr. Snow did was he mapped all of the deaths that happened from that cholera outbreak. And then he started looking around the environment, trying to figure things out. And after several uh, fits and starts, he came upon the idea of adding the water pumps to the map. And at that point, it became really clear when you visualized it that so many of those deaths were very near a single water pump in the city. And so he went and talked to the officials at the time, and they decided to remove the handle from the water pump so that no one would be able to use it. And that one action was the thing that ended the epidemic for them. Since that time, there has been an understanding that there are three major factors involved in infectious diseases, and those are an agent of disease, that could be a virus like coronavirus, then there's a susceptible host, and that could be, um, in this case, let's say an older adult with other chronic medical conditions, and then there's an environment that brings those two factors together, like being in a crowded convention hall or riding on the subway. That broad environmental piece brings the entire story together by adding the critical contextual information. Thank you for sharing this history lesson with us. What, how would you say the modern map is different? And it's different in so many ways than the maps of the time that you reference. But what would you say is fundamentally different in the way that we interact with maps today compared to historically? I think the biggest difference is probably the fact that we don't have to work with static maps anymore. A lot of people certainly use maps for many purposes, and they, a static map can be interesting to look at. But when it comes to your business, uh, the public's health, the work that we do day to day, being able to use geographic information in real time uh, more dynamically is a game changer. And so that, I think, has enabled these things like real-time dashboards, like monitoring people out in the field and creating different kinds of situational awareness apps and viewers. Uh, it's totally different. Do you see smart maps and real-time data providing uh, a sort of a conceptual leap forward for researchers and epidemiologists in terms of understanding the spread of this disease? Well, I think so, because I've said oftentimes during this pandemic that we're kind of building the plane as we fly it. And I think that goes to your question. A lot of times researchers and epidemiologists are examining data after the fact and doing their analysis once uh, everything has been said and done. But in this particular instance is uh, an example of something totally different going on. 
people are really trying to figure things out and model as quickly as they can. And I think the real-time data and maps that have been uh, provided by organizations like the WHO and Johns Hopkins University are helping them to get ahead of that research curve. Let's go back to talking about data a little bit. We've talked about the importance of having authoritative data to power these dashboards and these maps. Can you help us understand what is happening behind the scenes to actually collect, refine, and authorize this data? Depending on the data set that we're talking about, there could be a lot of review and uh, correction to the data that's needed, cleaning it up and formatting it for the applications that can actually make use of it. Now, with health data, we had to have an added complexity with the privacy consideration. So I think when we're talking about behind the scenes work with data, we're going to have people figuring out the proper levels of aggregation, for example, to ensure that we've de-identified personal information and that that data is safe to share. One of the most powerful ways that we can improve the data is to participate in data sharing kinds of activities like open data. Because I think when data are shared, whether that's shared between agencies or from one type of organization to another uh, or with the public, you can take advantage of the collective uh, of all of us, people who will find and point out any data inconsistencies or errors. Um, Because I think that we've got to probably balance all of this on the side of the data is good enough to share with a clear iterative data quality practice that um, helps us to keep it cleaned up as we notice errors. I think that's more important than balancing on the side of waiting until the data are perfect, because I think usable data is a lot better than locked up and unusable data. Speed is of an essence, clearly. All this disparate data needs to be viewed and analyzed in a system. Could you talk about how analysis of human and viral movement is uh, utilized to understand, predict, respond, etc. Sure. There's a whole area of inquiry going on right now around human movement data. And the idea is that we have a lot of information, we as the collective universe, <laughs> about people and where they're moving based on their smartphones. So people sometimes opt in on social media platforms or they enable location on their smartphones. Uh, Cell phone providers have some of that data. And we can look at how people are moving within the context of their lives and within the context of other people's lives. Now that becomes useful and interesting when you have something like a, a disease outbreak. Because if you can see where an infected person has been and who they've been in contact with, you can start to provide information and warnings to people who may have been exposed. You can start to understand the uh, built environment and the places where people tend to be congregating or coming into contact with one another. And so you can make decisions like shelter-in-place decisions or canceling certain types of events decisions that really help with that social distancing mechanism to uh, avoid infection. 
Can machine learning and deep learning, these advanced analytics uh, techniques, be used to help learn to predict some of these movements? Yes, I've definitely heard people talking about the potential there. Where I think we have uh, a struggle, a, a barrier, is with the data. A lot of people are currently scrambling for different kinds of data, but let's imagine a world where you have all of the data, all of the case information, and even maybe you have the genetic uh, factors of the virus for every case, and you know the characteristics of that person and the environments they were moving in. You know, I sort of think of machine learning and deep learning as um, kitchen sink analysis, right? You throw in the kitchen sink, uh, all of the data factors that you have, and you learn something new. And so there's huge potential to do that once we get some of those data needs under control. Now, we just discussed at length how mapping and location intelligence are important to governments and researchers and the medical community. Now, let's talk about how these may help businesses visualize and understand impacts on, on their business of this disease. How equipped do you think today's businesses are to respond to the disruption that they're seeing? Well, given the substantial decrease in my retirement nest egg, I'm thinking this pandemic has taken many, if not most, businesses and governments by surprise. I think we've seen significant panic in the marketplace, in, in my personal opinion, and maybe that's pretty well-grounded, in fact. But there's no doubt that everyone is examining their business continuity plans, uh, assessing their gaps and shortfalls, and they're trying to figure out how, how they can mitigate them. What, what can businesses do better in the future to be prepared? You discussed how mapping our infrastructures, understanding our resources, having that foundational data is important for society at large, governments, and so on. What about businesses? What should they be doing to be better prepared? Like anybody, they'll do better when they have a plan. I think um, businesses are probably most interested in three major areas in this particular situation. They want to understand the impact of COVID-19 on their employees. They want to understand the impact on their facilities. And frankly, I think they may flounder uh, and take precious time if they're trying to collect, analyze, and interpret data instead of just enacting a, a predefined plan. But also they need a clear communications plan. So they should be thinking about how can they tell their customers and the world how they're adjusting their business to be resilient in these times. Are they changing their business hours or maybe they're changing the way that you contact the business in this pandemic. Maybe they're transitioning from a brick and mortar model to a more virtual model. Maybe that's short term. Uh, maybe they change the way they do business. But if they can get the word out efficiently, that would support, I think, the continuity of their business and keep the economy moving forward, even if at a slower pace. Another dimension in business that's being impacted by this outbreak is the global supply chain. Can you talk about how specifically the health-related supply chain is impacted as far as the manufacturing distribution of the medicine, the pharmaceuticals, the equipment, and so on. 
In the past, I've given the example of what happened with Hurricane Maria on the supply of IV bags for the United States, because we rely on those IV bags being manufactured in Puerto Rico. And so the U.S. had a major shortage that actually changed the way that uh, nurses and other healthcare professionals had to administer medications. Now, in the current situation, we know that there was manufacturing for a number of key ingredients for the medications that we all use. Uh, that manufacturing was slowed because many of those plants were located in China. And there was a lot of concern about that. Uh, I will say that my understanding is that while the manufacturing did slow for a while, we didn't have a critical disruption. But now we're looking at sort of a whole new thing, right? We're looking at ways to increase the supply chain for ventilators in the United States and elsewhere. And we see some manufacturers who are really stepping up and they're retooling their production lines to pivot toward making uh, ventilators that health professionals are anticipating a great need for. But my overall sense of this is that businesses should always take a look at their supply chain for the critical items. And, you know, I'm wondering, is it feasible to employ geographic diversity to the supply chain? Businesses should always take a look at their supply chain for those critical items. That might help guard against major disruptions when something unexpected like this happens. So as we record this, there is a lot we still don't know about the coronavirus pandemic and much is still at play. Is there anything that surprised you about what's happened so far? Actually, Mariana, I feel like I get surprised every single day. Initially, I was surprised by the viral dashboarding applications that first reported on COVID-19 to the world. We're continuing to see literally millions of requests for those dashboards every single hour. More recently, I've been surprised to see that some of our key organizations across the country and around the world are unable to get and use the data that they need to get their important jobs done. And, and I'm dumbfounded by the lack of use of specific data systems that were created just for this kind of purpose. You know, why are those systems not working? Are they not reliable? I have no idea. And And I'm stunned, actually, by the behavior of some populations, as we talked about before, who just aren't taking this seriously uh, in a way that I think they should. So every day has been a surprise for me in one way or another. I hear a lot of passion in your voice, and I can only imagine as a doctor how you feel about the interdependentness of your ability as a profession to respond to this effectively. It's not enough to be a great doctor. It's also so important for all the other components to be tuned and available from infrastructure to policies, to data, to technology, to behavior change and so on. It's just staggering of how complex this is. So in closing, I'd ask you about a statement that the Director General of the World Health Organization said when he declared COVID-19 a pandemic. He warned that the situation would worsen, yet he noted that this is the first world pandemic that can be controlled in part due to global connectivity and awareness. I interpret this an acknowledgement that information travels faster than the virus, 
Is there reason from your perspective for encouragement in that message? I actually tend to be a silver linings kind of girl. Uh, so yes, I I am encouraged by all of the leaders and the population that are doing the right thing. I'm encouraged by those that are making the hard decisions to shelter in place and businesses that I have seen being creative in new ways that will help, I think, ensure their survival while also helping with the world's needs at this time. So there's a lot of good going on. And I think, uh, as you said, Mariana, it's largely because of the global state of connectivity and awareness that we have, um, and not in small measure because of the dashboards that have informed the world. I think if if we can exercise a bit of patience and maybe a little self-control, practice our hand hygiene and our social distancing, we can do vastly better in this pandemic and positively exceed all of our expectations. Thank you very much, Hester, for this wonderful conversation and a lot of insight at this difficult time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mariana. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to SD Garrity for explaining how technology, data, and smart maps are changing the way we react to global threats like the coronavirus outbreak. For information resources, visit esri.com forward slash COVID-19.